Chapter Twenty Nine of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine Good Measure. Not alone, in any sense of the word. The all reaching promise, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, had sounded down to her through the ages, and felt to her heart as though he who is the same yesterday, today, and forever had spoken the word but yesterday to her individual need. Not alone as regarded human love and care, for she had been chosen by one who counted it a special and crowning mercy of the master whom he served, that just she and no other in all the world had been called to walk with him on his life's journey. Are you interested to know who this other was? Do you remember the nephew, Charlie, and the muffins for tea? and the extra lumps of coal in the grate, and the buffetings of Satan which Mrs. Spafford endured on their account, when he whispered in her ear, To what purpose is this waste? These lumps of coal might have been saved, and thus the money which must now be taken to buy other lumps have been dropped into your mite-box to swell the general fund. His wretched attempts to appear as an angel of light were long since silenced by a word from the master, which Mrs. Spafford took to him as her answer. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether shall prosper this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. And now behold, he had indeed prospered, ay, and given already a tenfold harvest. For it was Charlie, the nephew who was going in a few months to carry on her work, right in the centre of the field, while she worked still at home. Only a few months before he had graduated and had been ordained to preach the everlasting gospel. Truly there are times in which God proves that a day with him is as a thousand years. Looking back upon the story of her past, Mrs. Spafford marveled sometimes that even God could work so fast or bring such wondrous things to pass. Not the least among her joys was the fact that the one who had quietly borne all the expense of Charlie's education and outfit for his faraway field was the carpet clerk, Mr. Johns. He is my contribution to foreign missions, the widower was apt to say, with a humorous shake of his grey head, when the church hinted its desire to share some of the honour with him. Charlie is my contribution. Mrs. Spafford was always asking me to give to foreign missions the very money that I had been saving up for Charlie. I wanted to please her, and I wanted him to have the money, and so I just made up my mind to lump it. Charlie belongs to me. Ah, yes, with limitations. Long before this had Mr. Johns recognized and bowed before a higher ownership, both for Charlie and himself. But with a price and the day in which he and Charlie stood together in the church, and gave public recognition of this eternal ownership, was one of the happiest in Mrs. Spafford's life. Could she do other than rejoice that he had said to them in private, I told the Lord, Mr. Spafford, that you and your wife had brought in this worthless old chief, as well as the younger one, who I think will yet bring others with him. The Lord knows it is true, and he knows that with you to show me how, 
I mean to try to go home not entirely empty-handed. There was no danger of it. More than one gem already sparkles in the crown set aside and waiting for that gray head. Now, during this long retrospect of ours, the young ladies' missionary meeting has gone steadily on. As I said, they ran off their track with Lena long enough to launch out in a dozen questions as to what she meant to do about this and that and the other. And she, as entirely and happily at home with them, as though they had been her sisters in the flesh, gave ready answers and took sweet counsel with them, realizing that there was between them a bond of union stronger than death and strengthening with every passing day. This talk in no wise unfitted them for the ten minutes of prayer, in which nearly every lady in that room gave audible expression to her love for Christ and his cause, and her desire that their special treasure Lena might be upborne by his everlasting arm. Then they sang, Blessed be the tie that binds, and the January meeting was over. How do you get it to sound so little like a meeting? questioned an interested visitor one day. Why, I mean, you know, the absence of all formality is so striking. They just talk away as though they were having a good time, and yet they are thoroughly well prepared. It cannot be just a chance conversation which they hold. Yes, it is, declared Mrs. Evans. That is, if you please to call it so. The young ladies prepare themselves with great thoroughness, taking time and care, and then the mere words in which they clothe their thoughts for the meeting are as much chance as yours are when you remark to me that it is an unusually cold day. As a matter of fact, you have observed the weather before this, consulted a thermometer it may be, compared the weather report of this date with the corresponding one of last year. In other words, you have perhaps prepared yourself to give an intelligent and correct estimate of the weather." but the words in which you make the statement are entirely unstudied. I understand, the visitor said, but still I don't see how you ever get them to study up and be ready, nor how they contrive to appear so natural and unconstrained about it when they are ready. They will not study until they are interested and have something to study for. It is the result of long training." Mrs. Spafford has simply been indefatigable in that, as in everything else that she undertakes, and she has had Mrs. Temple to consult and lead her on. Her custom for years had been to give a mission station to a certain number of girls for three months. They are supposed to post themselves thoroughly about that station, and whatever question we may chance to ask of them concerning it, if they cannot answer, and it is answerable, they are expected to be ready with the item the next time they meet us. At the end of three months, they change, each taking another field. In this way, all the girls, except the quite new ones, have had each of the stations. So, of course, they know a good deal about them. And there is always a sort of pride in standing up for the country to which one happens to belong for the time being. As for the unconstrained, they feel no constraint, so of course exhibit none. They have been trained to talk on this topic exactly as they discuss the weather or the fashions, or the last book they have read. You notice that they continue their work, except during the strictly devotional exercises, 
and the talk is frequently interrupted by a call for the scissors, or the canvas, or the blue or red or green silk. Mrs. Spafford, after careful study, became convinced that this informal way of managing the matter, allowing the interruptions that would naturally occur in common conversation, was the best way of helping the girls to feel at home and informal. It has worked well. Now I have given you, as I promised, just a glimpse of the young ladies' band. It could really be only a glimpse, for I have neither time nor ability to let you at once into the inner workings of this carefully planned and skillfully officered scheme. No general of an army, planning his campaign, could work more steadily, patiently, and with a more single eye to victory, than did the mature brains that had taken hold with these young things to do battle for the Lord. To be sure, they had many helpers now, among the young people themselves. A few years really makes veterans of people who are in earnest, and a number of those who had taken hold of the work as quite young girls remained as mature young ladies to drill with the new recruits, who were constantly gathering. Many had married and gone out from them, it is true, but enough of the old material remained to keep the business part of the enterprise from ever being the ponderous and somewhat hazardous experiment that it was when Mrs. Spafford first put her shoulder to the wheel. Meantime, that lady's afternoon work was by no means finished with the close of the meeting. She hastened home as soon as she could break away from groups of talkers who all had questions of immediate importance to press. She had a good reason to make haste, for she was well aware that another missionary meeting was in progress, which was liable by this time to need her immediate attention. I trust you have not forgotten young Warren Spafford. He has arrived at an age in which it is not easy to forget any boy who is within reasonable distance and young Warren was by no means the sort of boy to sink into oblivion. No meek and quiet spirit was he, but a vigorous, loud-voiced, quick-witted, wide-awake fellow, as you will be likely to find at eight years of age. He was a boy who developed constantly in the line of schemes. Daring ones, intricate in their nature, were constantly appearing to him to be worked up. Some of these plans were practical, and others were decidedly and hopelessly the reverse. But of this last he would never be convinced by previous experience. Each individual plan had to be carefully tried before he was ready to abandon it. His last experiment had been a missionary meeting among the boys, suddenly projected on his mother without word of warning. Three gatherings had been held, and with a code of laws that, to say the least, was original, and a program that was unique, enthusiasm was still at white heat. His mother, looking on, wondering whether this was really seed springing up on fertile soil, or a dream that would come to naught, did what she could to encourage the small people, and bided her time. If I had only planned it for him, she told herself, smiling over some of the quaint plans which she had not made, perhaps it might really have developed well, but how could I plan when the queer little fellow started it up suddenly, apparently full-fledged? Never mind, out of the mouths of babes he has ordained praise. 
perhaps this will grow to his praise. One thing seemed certain, that if he lived, Warren Spafford would in some way fulfill the hopes of his babyhood, for if his enthusiasm could be said to center on any one thing, and hold itself with an ever-increasing fervor, that thing was the world of missions. Standing at the front window of the house opposite her own, was a pale-faced, hollow-eyed, discontented-looking woman. If you had been near to her, you would not have had to look very closely to trace lines of unrest, many and heavily marked, on her white, dreary face. She had aged in the passing years far more than the other ladies, which possibly you will not think strange when I tell you she is Jenny Coleman, and that she has come to live with her cousin, Mrs. Evans. That last sentence gives you a hint, at least, of family disunion and trouble. Speedy as Mrs. Spafford's transit had been, her neighbor had reached home before her, and was upstairs now, ready to have Mrs. Coleman's ceaseless observations on passers-by poured at her. "'There is Callie. I wonder why she persists in wearing that cloak. It is too short for the present style, and never became her very well either. But then I know why she wears it, just because she is too penurious to get another.' That is just like Callie Spafford, and it was just like Callie Howell. I should think that she might remember now that she is a rich woman, but it is inborn that trait in her character. She is just as careful and economical as when she was first married and lived in that little old house. Do you remember that day we met her at the store, and she wouldn't buy asparagus because it was so expensive? Well, I met her downtown yesterday, and pointed out some elegant hothouse grapes to her. They were so lovely, they fairly made my mouth water. And do you believe she wouldn't buy them? She said they were out of season, and so expensive that she must not look their way. The idea of her talking that way, and her husband a partner in one of the largest houses in the city. Mrs. Evans laughed. Once her face would have flushed, and her eyes flashed over this sort of comment on her friend. But she had learned at last to live away above Jenny's unwearied tongue, accounting it as not of the smallest consequence, save to her own bitter heart what the poor tongue kept saying. I suppose she thinks she must be conscientious in the use of money, even though she has considerable, she said pleasantly. Oh, conscientious, that's all nonsense vehemently declared mrs coleman she was born so and cannot help it i tell you it is just as natural for her to save it as to breathe and i must say i think it is an exceedingly unbecoming trait it did well enough when she was poor but in her present circumstances it is very noticeable you are not naturally that way eva i don't think as a girl you were in the least penurious but you are so fond of copying Callie Spafford that I tremble for you. It is growing real hard for you to buy anything that you can do without, such a low, poverty-stricken position to take when there is no matter of occasion. Now, when we consider the fact that Mrs. Evans was daily spending money for the care and comfort of this, her homeless cousin, she might perhaps be pardoned for feeling the plain words a trifle but they provoked from her only a smile. They were actually too foolish to feel. 
Oh, you must remember that Mr. and Mrs. Spafford frequently prove the fact that they have money, by the way in which they give it, if they don't buy spending, she said, speaking lightly. Oh, give! I am not likely to forget it. That is another hobby of theirs which they ride to death. I think it is quite as silly and extreme as the other. The idea of the Spaffords giving two hundred dollars to the collection for foreign missions, in addition to all that she does in the band. It is perfectly absurd. Millionaires don't do much more than that. It is nothing but pride. Scrimp and save to see how much they can give. That is another thing in which you and Dane are copying as hard as you can. I don't see how Dane can do it. He seems to be independent enough about some things. You never were independent, Eva, but I wouldn't tie myself down to any copy if I were you. That is really what I am trying to do, said Mrs. Evans, sweetly and simply. He is our pattern, you know. Dane and I both want to copy him very closely. Oh, pshaw, said Mrs. Coleman, giving an impatient twitch to her shoulders, her whole face gathering in a frown. She called all such words can't. After a moment of irritable silence, she went back to the charge. I declare, I believe Callie Spafford is a monomaniac on giving, and she is bringing up her child to be just like her. He has a rosewood box perched on the mantel in his own room, and he took me in to see it the other night, and talked to me about his tenths as largely as though he were a merchant prince, for all the world like his father, earning money he is, too, like the child of a day-laborer. Well, Callie was a queer girl in every respect, and she has certainly made a queer woman. Then the flow of talk was interrupted by a long-drawn sigh, and after a moment she added in a low, dreary voice, it is a strange world. Think of you two girls beginning life as poor as you did, and your husbands in just these few years on the way to being rich men, while I am a miserable, wrecked woman. No home, no husband, no friends. And the talk ended, as it so often did, in a burst of sobs. Poor Jenny Coleman! It was of no avail to attempt consolation, Mrs. Evans knew this by past experience only too well. At such times, words only seemed to have power to irritate. She was deeply, painfully sorry for her cousin. But there was no truthful way of saying so, without leaving at least the inference that much of the fault of her wretched life was her own. No husband! Not that the grave had closed over him— Mrs. Evans could not fail to see that the unloving wife would have been better pleased if it had. The unwearied exertions of Dane Evans and Mr. Spafford had at last prevailed, and the wreck of the once perfect gentleman, Will Coleman, had consented to shut himself inside the walls of an inebriate asylum. Whether he would ever come back into the world of men, a saved man, God only knew." One of the hardest features of it all was that his miserable, disappointed wife not only had no hope of him, but did not seem to want to have. Thinking of it all, of the eagerness of this young couple to be rich, of the strides towards it which they thought themselves making, 
of the family across the way and the almost unbroken tide of prosperity that had flowed in upon them since the hour when they held to principle rather than to bread if there must a choice be made thinking of their own signal leading and of the wonderful tense which god had given to both families in these last years mrs evans thought but by no means said there is that maketh himself rich yet hath nothing there is that maketh himself poor yet hath great riches was that verse written for the purpose of giving to the world a history of these three families when will the world by observation learn wisdom mamma said young warren his cheeks very red his eyes aglow we made a thank-offering to-day i told the boys about your thank-offering in the band you know and they liked it and they each gave a cent more than their tents and you know the gold dollar that uncle dane gave me for my birthday well i gave the half of that for a thank-offering we gave it because we are all so happy and having a grand time wasn't that a good reason mamma a thoughtful pause during which the bright dark eyes took on a gleam as though within the soul was born some great resolve and then he said mamma i am going to pray to jesus to make me well enough off when i am a man so that i can give half of my money for thank offerings i mean half of what is left after the tents are taken out of course i'd give them they belong but i want to give something you know besides what belongs and there'll be enough things to be thankful for won't there looking down into his eager face and smiling eyes the mother stooped and kissed him once and again and again and repeated aloud to herself rather than him that old-time promise having this seal i have spoken it i will also bring it to pass give and it shall be given unto you good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom for with the same measure that ye meet withal it shall be measured to you again end of chapter 29 end of the pocket measure by pansy recording by trisha g thanks for listening